I'm delighted to have with me today Fahad Ifaz from iPharma. Welcome. Thank you, Rafael. Thank you for having me in the in the show. It's my pleasure. And, um, you know, I, you've actually been on my radar for quite a while because as an investor, I was lucky enough to catch one of your decks in your previous funding round, actually. <laughs> and um, and then the next time I saw you was on a conference call and I was staggered by, uh, by your growth. So I figured this would be a really interesting chat to have and, and share with listeners because you've really accelerated over the last year or two haven't you as a company yeah i think i think we have but i also feel that we just we have just started and there's a long way to go <laughs> i think i think that's how entrepreneurship always feels but so so before we dig into exactly what iPharma is tell us a bit about your background where you came from your education and and and, and sort of your early career experiences sure so i was uh, born in bangladesh in the capital dhaka which is probably one of the most populous city in the world. And yes, I, I my schooling, my university, everything, everything happened in, in Dhaka. I went to one of the, uh, you know, one of the most reputed private universities um, in Bangladesh. Um, I started, I, I enrolled in, um, you know, business um, with international business as my major. But then for some reason, I still don't know why I got attracted to economics. Um, so I did a dual major um, in international business and economics. <clears throat> but I think, I think it was during the university days that I really, really got the I think I got, you know, bitten by the entrepreneurial bug during my university days because I started, I joined a club which is called the Young Entrepreneur Society. Um, I joined as a junior member and I ended up being the president of the club. And during those three, four years at the club, uh, as you can imagine, it's called entrepreneur, entrepreneur Society. So there's a lot of interaction with entrepreneurs, um, you know, people from the private sector, people from you know policymakers or you know the, the the whole policymaking industry and everything but everything was around how can we foster entrepreneurship in Bangladesh and yeah I think that sort of that sort of uh, I think encouraged me but I probably did not realize that I want to become an entrepreneur right out of university because mm-hmm. I grew up in a middle class family in, in in Bangladesh where entrepreneurship was. I think I think right now the situation has changed, but back then I'm talking about 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, entrepreneurship was not really a thing like you know uh, a girl or a guy would just walk up to their parents and say I want to I want to you know start a company or I want I want to have a startup and stuff like that it was not really normal people would expect you to work for a bank or you know a large multinational those sort of stuff were, were really common and I went that way as well like you know I followed the I followed the the heart and I went I ended up you know, interviewing for a for a for a multinational bank, and I I think I worked there for about a week, and I realized that that is that is not my thing. I can how hard I try, I can never be a banker. <laughs> so so you had your epiphany early. You didn't wait for ten years or twenty years yeah, in no. banking to uh, to to realize it wasn't for you. Was there something particular that turned you off about that internship I or think, that, that? It was so so it's like a proper job. It's not even an internship. So right. And I think I think it was it was the culture the the 
you know, very formal. Everyone's like, you know, dressed up in their suits and ties and everything. And then I was like, and, and probably it was because I just, I, I, was, I was in the university. Um, and, and the next thing I know is I'm sitting in this, you know, large office in a, in a bank. And I probably, um, I, I probably still had my student hat on. Um, mm-hmm. I could not take all these formalities and, you know, the, 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 the culture and everything. I thought I'd want something much more relaxed. <laughs> And and the second thing was, uh, it, it felt like everyone's everyone's like you know on their own. And uh, even though I spent only a week, but it felt like everyone's on their own. And and the collective vision is to make more money, but we don't know why we're making so much money. <laughs> so yeah, I think I was just um, a young kid fresh out of university, having all these weird thoughts, and yeah, I just realized this is not for me. Well, if any banks are listening, they're going to uh, have to work on their, <laughs> their uh, talent policies, how they're going to keep and attract the best talent moving forward. But you opted for something else then. Which way did you go? Right. So interestingly, I went, I started working for an NGO, um, which was a Swiss NGO. Um, and one of their, I think it was, it was a lot, it was one of the first projects in the world, which which had the mandate to work with private sector to help the private sector design and develop products and services for the bottom of the pyramid or the poor population that they target. Because, and this was a very fresh approach because traditionally NGOs were handing out stuff, right? Yeah. Someone, so this project had a very interesting approach that we will not hand out stuff. We will work with the private sector to help them design products and services which creates a win-win. They can earn, they can, you know, generate revenue from this while the target population can get access to these certain services and products. And yeah, so I think that sort of attracted me again, given that my background in university, I was working with the entrepreneur you know, in the entrepreneurs um, society and working and talking with entrepreneurs, that sort of that sort of registered with me this idea of, well, let's work with entrepreneurs and help them design new products and services. But on top of that, I think one of the other things that attracted me to this was because this is a this was a um, national project. So they would work all over Bangladesh. And on the first day of the interview, my boss back then who was taking the interview, he basically said, Are you willing to travel all across the country. And I was like, yes, that is what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I think I think these couple of things probably sort of encouraged me to 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 work um in in, in NGO and and but also I also had to when I when I when I told this uh, to my friends, to my faculty members, honestly speaking, no one really took it positively because they're like, you're a business graduate. You're not joining uh, joining a private company. You're basically joining an NGO. And yeah. That does not look like, you know, a good prospect for your for your career, for, yeah. for everything else. So you felt there was a stigma at the time around <laughs> NGOs because they're just yeah. seen as um, loss making entities rather than the bank, right, which is all right. about maximizing profit. Yeah. You, you felt yeah. that pressure around you? Oh yeah, that was that, there's there's a, there's a lot of pressure um, from everyone because there is this thing that you know if you're not really bright enough mm-hmm. um, to join at the the MNCs or the you know the the local conglomerates banks and stuff. So that's why that's why you ended up in an NGO where you know you really don't have to do much right? <laughs> other than handing outs and you know, providing handouts to people. <laughs> 
And is that what you you felt the experience was like in reality? Uh, no, I'm not <laughs> not even close to that because I think the experience was I think I learned so much, um, which I I wouldn't have learned if I honestly speaking now that I look back I think I wouldn't have learned all this stuff I wouldn't have interacted with so many people. So Bangladesh has about sixty five districts. I traveled and worked in almost forty eight districts. And meeting like all like you know people from all layers like from mm-hmm. from farmers to like laborers to like you know small shop owner to like one of the largest owner of a agri processing company or you know a farm mechanization company it was just it was just all these different experiences and so many you know different perspectives um, I think I learned a lot and right now whatever I'm doing I think all this thing that I've learned is sort of coming back. And I can feel that some of these missing puzzles are missing pieces of the puzzles, like, you know, falling into their places. So you were were basically, you traveled a lot. Um, I see that you, it wasn't just Bangladesh either. And and your career wasn't just one NGO in the end. You've worked for several, so so a decade or so in in, in that space. Yeah, so I I think my first job, which was with the Swiss NGO, worked mostly with the private sector partners, um, you know, the value chain actors and, you know, more so people on the ground, right? But then I realized that a lot of things in a country like Bangladesh does not change um, because of uh, or, or, or needs to change, but it's, it's not the people on the ground who have the authority to make those changes. You need to work with the policymakers. So I jumped ship. I started working for the World Bank, uh, particularly with IFC on the on their South Asia business advisory team. And the, and the whole, you know, the whole mandate of that team was to work with policymakers, change um, the laws or, or, or work with policymakers to make a more conducive environment for businesses to thrive, uh, which gave me a different level of exposure now that I got to work with, you know, the ministers and the and the bureaucrats and 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 people on that side of the table who who makes the policies and the laws and and everything else. And that was that was in itself an interesting experience as well. Um, during during my work um, there, of course, I I got a lot of exposure. But right after, uh, I think I think right after IFC, so I started doing um, consulting work because um, again I felt that seems like a bit more exciting because there are a lot of NGOs and projects who wants people um, to come and support them. Um, and my uh, expertise was actually you know helping these. NGOs NGOs or these donor-funded projects to work uh, with uh, market actors. And, and the definition of market actors was not just the private sector, but also the policymakers and, you know, the enablers of the market as well. Yeah. And that that took me to places. Um, I worked in uh, Myanmar, India, Thailand, spent, uh, you know, some time in Nigeria. And then right before I jumped onto my, you know, final act of entrepreneurship that I'm currently on, I, I worked almost for three years in, in, in Myanmar. Uh, where I was leading a uh, multi-million dollar project with Care International, 
Uh, and the project was entirely focused on increasing the capability of smallholder farmers, providing access to finance, access to market, and and all this stuff. Wow. So so I mean that come that's obviously direct, very relevant experience. Would you say Myanmar is a similar market to Bangladesh, or or very different? I think I think it's very different. Although although we're neighbors, but it's very different given that. Bangladesh has a population of about 170 million people versus Myanmar's around 50 to 60 million. And, and the country is almost five, three, four, I think it's about four or five times uh, bigger than, than Bangladesh. It was a very different con, you know, context and, 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 and the situation was very different. On the other side, Bangladesh, I think the economy of Bangladesh is much more competitive. There's so many there's so many players in the market and they're competing. So there's, there's everyone wants to do well than their competition. Um, versus Myanmar, I think, I think the market, again, given their economic situation and everything else the the political and economic situation Myanmar was not so competitive I want to say so yeah it was uh, the context were very different so the the essence of what you saw in Myanmar with your work at that time did you is that where you first um, realized the there was a funding gap for for farmers and or in agriculture in general that's that was the final <laughs> I think that was that was that was the final step that I had to take but I, th- I think my my exposure to this started right after university when I joined that first NGO. Um, but back then, I think I was too young to formulate this, to understand mm-hmm. this, like what is happening. And one thing I learned throughout this uh, journey, uh, which is a very important lesson um, for me, I feel, is that most cases when we look at a problem, uh, we, we mostly look at the symptom, right? And, mm-hmm. and most solutions are designed around that symptom. Um, but there's there are very few solutions which are designed to to resolve the underlying causes. Um, mm. And and that is something I think I think it took me like almost ten years to to, to understand this. That it's it's it's. But yeah, the exposure to these farmers not getting access to finance, farmers not getting you know access to market, uh, they're not buying uh, good quality input and stuff. I was exposed to this, but I was not really understanding like like. Why is it? Why are they not getting all these services? There's so much money mm-hmm. coming in from the from the international development space. There's government subsidy. There are the private sector companies. Then then yeah, why why do we keep you know seeing that farmers are still not getting these um, you know services and and they're not thriving where they should be because you know they are technically feeding 160 million people in a country <laughs> like ours. I think the exposure was. Uh, exposure to this problem started really early and then I think I got a bit more confidence because at first I thought maybe it's just a Bangladesh problem but then I you know when I worked around a bit I thought no it's not only a Bangladesh problem it seems like it's a problem everywhere um, that I've worked on and then gradually probably I, I was able to understand a bit more I don't I don't claim I understand it completely because it is a very complex uh, system but I think I got a bit more confident to know okay where should you at least try to start to solve this problem yeah I think 
a lot of entrepreneurs get maybe some expertise in a particular technology or excited about a technology or in a, a specific approach. And then it's easy to kind of generate a, a solution that, that's looking for a problem in a way. But it seems like your your decade of experience is really, you know, helping you interact with the different actors and, and participants in the value chain, etc., to really understand the, the interrelated nature of the different participants and, and thereby start to construct a solution that, that could make sense to them. But how did you how did you make the jump? Did you did you quit the NGO saying I know I'm gonna build iPharma, or did you you know start an MVP, or how how did that transition happen? So no, so I quit. Um, I think I think I, I had the courage to quit when I found couple of the partners who wanted to join with me and 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 and, and the first person that um, jumped ship was one of my friends who's currently the uh, you know the he's the CEO and the co-founder another co-founder of five farmer uh, Jamil um, him and I we go way back from university like almost 15 20 years of friendship and we, he comes from a technology background so we always talked about this but never really had the idea of what we really wanted to do that's a, but I think I think he was the first one who said, "Yeah, I mean, let's. This seems like a big problem. Let's let's try and do something." And the first thing we did was also not iFarmer. So iFarmer was sort of like a a, a side project. Uh, the first thing we did, both of us, was to start a tech company, which started because we needed revenue. We needed like we wanted to start um, earning as well. So we started a tech company along with uh, two others. So there's just four of us who started this company called Misfit Technologies, which was which was more of a you know a, a dev shop that would develop apps and websites and softwares for you know uh, clients. The whole idea was that we want to build and work on iFarmer, but to build this, we need we need money. And to generate that money, we started selling softwares and apps and websites to Misfit. And whatever whatever we were getting, we're putting into iFarmer and a couple of other projects. So that's that's how we started in 2018. And the first version of iFarmer was also an entirely different project. Like, you know, we, we were we were trying to do rooftop, rooftop urban, you know, urban farming uh, on people's rooftop. Um, and, and and I still don't know why that was that was the first idea that we we got so stuck stuck on because A, my experience it just now that I look back, it just logically does not make sense because I had no idea about urban farming. I had more idea about um, you know actual farmers doing the farming and I can't remember how we just got into that idea that okay let's start rooftop farming uh, we tried that for six months and then we realized that is not a really scalable model at least not for this country mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense when you have about 20 million farmers who are much more experienced in with regards to you know producing food so yeah so after trying that for six months we then shifted towards the model that we're currently on where we directly work with the the actual farmers the um uh the rooftop thing that's that's quite interesting we're seeing car parks turned into uh yeah. vertical farms and stuff here in singapore so you know it can be it can be a great solution but not necessarily in the right location right. You know, what, what what was the reason did you think at that time you needed to 
to really completely innovate and 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 be like category defining or or like create um, almost alchemy from from nothing? Or what what was do you think was um, making you want to go with an urban solution when you have so much rural experience? So I think I think a couple of things, but I think the most important one. And now that I look back, and I think I am almost embarrassed to even admit this, <laughs> is the fact that. It seemed like an idea that potential investors would like, and it felt like, oh yeah, that's that's the thing. Like if we start this and we start pitching this, mm-hmm. uh, money will start flowing, you know, coming in. That was mm-hmm. that was the first thought. The second one was also that look when 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 I think because most of us, even though I have had the most exposure to working in rural areas, but again I grew up in in the city, right? My family, everything isn't you know they they lived in the city. You know what you call like a zone of influence, right? So mm-hmm. probably all of us felt, including myself, that you know it's much more easy to operate, right? Within, yeah. within the city because we live here we, we know how the city works and we know people networks and blah 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 versus yeah like the whole operations and everything of, of you know running things in rural areas uh, we just probably thought it was too much so I, th- I think this this was uh, this was two of the more, you know, most important reasons a I think we wanted to attract uh, investment and we thought this this model sounds like an investable idea to pitch yeah uh, because back then on like I don't think agri tech as a category was not really popular, not even in India where you already had like you know a lot of e-commerce and everything uh, in 2017, 18, even in 2017, 18 agri probably was not a vertical that would get a lot of exposure from the VCs or you know the investors as it gets now. Yeah, and I don't think you should be embarrassed by those comments to be honest because I think it, uh, fundraising is just so hard um, and I think often underestimated just how hard it is even for fast growing um, you know VC backable companies is still still very tough um, so I can I can completely understand wanting a solution that would attract uh, attract <laughs> capital and as for the biases I think we're all kind of guilty of wanting to build a business that that's kind of acknowledged or seen on our doorstep and the same goes for investors so I know you know several examples where investors have persuaded companies to expand into a, a geography that, that they were based in uh, because uh, honestly probably they wanted to be able to see the logo and say yeah, I've backed that I've backed this thing and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right next market to go into yeah. so these these you know humans are always human we're gonna keep making these mistakes because yeah. we uh, yeah we, we we are a little bit you know prone to ego so so you, you you kind of plowed sort of six months into this but at the same time you kind of you 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 had I farmer in in the back of your mind at least I guess um, ready to ready to translate into what it's becoming now yeah so so during those six months um we tried different stuff on the urban rooftop farming and, and i think i think it was during those six months the current model of iFarmer was also sort of formulating because i felt like this is not um the urban rooftop farming is it's not going to happen and stuff i think there's one particular day probably i just felt that we need to rethink because it was like you know in in Dhaka city most people they live in apartments and no one really knows who owns the rooftop or who has the authority to do anything on the rooftop. 
everyone has their own apartment, they own the apartment. Um, the rooftop seems to be like um, not a clear understanding of what, what is possible in, the, in that space or not. And we literally got kicked out of the apartment building because, you know, one person, he gave us the permission to go and, you know, set up the farms in the rooftop. The next guy comes in and says, we gave you the permission uh, just get out of the apartment building. And I felt like that is it like you know this like this is it this this thing is not going to work and and i think i came back and went to the drawing board and start i think the first thing i do is like you know draw the whole agriculture value chain that i know of and try to explain this to my team that you know this this is where the food comes from it does not come from people's rooftop mm-hmm. uh, this 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 is the whole system that feeds the country but there are so many problems that i think we can solve and i, th- I think one after the end of the conversation one of the one of one of my team members uh, we were just a four-person team and one of the team members basically said but farmers will not be able to pay so that probably we won't be able to make a lot of revenue and that doesn't that doesn't look good and i'm like there are about 20 million of them so even if they pay whatever they can and they would still make loads of money but first of all let's 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 write down that assumption that you have that farmers are not willing to pay or farmers are not able to pay and let's go and test it out so that's how we just graduated from urban farming company to work on that current model so first thing we did was four of us we went to like you know um, talk to farmers with these two assumptions that if someone offers these solutions to the farmers will that come earn revenue either from the farmer or from someone else like what does it look like so yeah that's that's when i think that was the beginning of iFarmer as we as we know it uh, as current model very cool um so for a moment i i thought it'd be interesting to talk about this market that, that you've understood um so well um in your in your travels around bangladesh because you mentioned there's 20 million farmers that's an astonishing number of people because the size of Bangladesh, as you already said, is very small. It's, you know, I had a quick look. It's about the size of England and Wales for people in Europe. Um, and for those in North America, it's about the size of the state of New York. So it's a pretty small area to have the uh, population that, that, that you have, which is, what did you say, 170 now? Or Yes, it's 170. 170 million people. And, you know, if you look at the size of the UK in terms of a, an equivalent or at least England and Wales, not even Scotland and Northern Ireland, Island, but just England and Wales combined similar land mass. There's a hundred thousand farmers in Bangladesh. You're talking about <laughs> 20 million, right? So it's okay. it's a completely different setup. It's hard for people to imagine, I guess, if you've passed, um, you know, fields of corn or dairy or whatever um, cows. You, you know, they're, they're huge things. Farms run with tractors and everything. Right. But I'm right. guessing it's just like way more smallholder farmers in Bangladesh, and they're they're producing, you know, mixed crops for. Example, example and, right. and and in a lot lot higher density in 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 lots of rural areas and and that must be a challenge for you guys because it means that you have to be everywhere right yeah so so yeah so just just to give you the context of so bangladesh about 20 million farmers uh, the average land size of these farmers are about 2 to 2.5 acres right so that's wow. that's a pretty small land and they're very 
densely populated, right? So the whole country is densely populated. Um, so in a way, it's a challenge that you have to deal with so many, um, you know, farmers versus like you know having to deal with you know a few thousand who controls like you know a few thousand acres of land. Um, but also, I think I think it also gives an opportunity because. A like you know the the just just the number of potential customer is 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 is, is a lot and it, it makes apps like every sense to try to serve these you know um, you know large number of farmers. On the other hand, because it's a smaller country, right? So like un- unlike you know like let's say Indonesia or India, which are, which are like you know really large countries, for us it's much easier to you know get access to these um, farmers because uh, again. They 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 live in a in a very closely knitted um, you know farming communities clusters and stuff like that. You don't have to really travel really far to meet your next farmer. Yeah, you will meet him or her like you know right next to the first farmer you met. So so yeah, there are challenges and opportunities, and and also with regards to the country's economy and 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 the contribution of agriculture. Currently, the so the size of Bangladesh's GDP is about four hundred. Uh, 20 billion and agriculture um, contributes around 13 to 14 percent Mm-hmm. And which was much higher. I think in 2010, this was almost about 40% contribution. But of course, over the years, Bangladesh has graduated and you know, invested a lot in manufacturing and yeah. you know, garments and all this stuff. So the relative, uh, you know, the percentage has come down, but the volume has not really come down uh, with regards to agriculture. Um, the other thing we see is that a lot of farmers, currently the, the age of, the average age of farmers... Uh, uh, in Bangladesh is about 40. Now the challenge is that, and the question that I keep asking myself and my team and everyone else that, look, this is not a country where we will suddenly see like, you know, really large farms. So we'll have to depend on these smallholder farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, now the problem is that the next generation of these farmers who are currently active, like their children, their, their sons and daughters, are not really interested to get into farming. Um, and the reason is that they have seen their parents uh, you know, struggle. They've seen how much the you know they have to walk around and you know in the field from dawn to dusk. Even mm-hmm. then, they're not getting the right price, the right market, not making enough money. The question is that you know Bangladesh currently has 170 million people. It will have 240 million people by 2050. Wow! And the question is, who's going to feed this? Um, large number of people in, in in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, that's huge population growth. And, you know, I read that agriculture accounted for 90% of the reduction of poverty in, in Bangladesh between right. 2005 to 2010. And if nobody wants to be farmers moving forward, then it could likely, you know, potentially swing the other way. So are you, is that something you're trying to address with the work that you're doing? Or, or is it, is it just a, is it just a kind of thing that you acknowledge and, and, you know, can't really have any influence over. No, I think I think this is this is an underlying problem that we uh, are also trying to solve. I uh, and and the, of course we are trying different things here because a agriculture does not have to be or farming does not have to be a back breaking job, right? There are ways to make it much like you know 
much easier, right? Like, you know, for example, farm mechanization is a, is, is a thing, yeah. right? Which is, cool. which is not very heavily adopted in the country uh, because most farmers don't have the capacity to invest in, mm-hmm. you know, machines and stuff. Like, you know, precision agriculture is, is, is also important uh, because that helps you to reduce cost and then increases your ROI in the, in the short to medium run as well. Um, and these are the things and, and, and overall, like integrating technology. And these are the things the younger generation would be much more interested in because they don't they want uh, they want more things in life, right? So when I talk to these younger farmers in, in rural areas, they they're like, look, we we don't want to do uh, farming the way our parents did because they could live and you know spend the whole day in the field, but we want mm-hmm. to do other things. We want to enjoy life as well. Yeah. So, so if there is farm mechanization, precision agriculture, and all these you know new technology that can help me to do the job in like two hours compared to my parents who spend to do the mm-hmm. same job like you know about eight to ten hours, then yes, I will be interested. And then I also need a good return from my investment, right? I also want to be able to reach the market. I also want to be able to negotiate with the market and, and all this stuff. And then, yes, we will be interested because this land belongs to us. And if you're not doing anything, uh, which uh, then, you know, there is no utilization of the land. So, so yeah, the younger generation is, is interested, but it's also that they want things to be done uh, in, a, in, in their own way. And iFarmer is trying to do that as, as, as well. Uh, we're slowly uh, trying to in- integrate more technology. We're trying to integrate precision agriculture. We have just started working into farm mechanization. All of these to be able to attract the next generation of farmers to continue to work. That's awesome. So tell us what iFarmer is today. So iFarmer today is an agri-fintech company that provides or bundles financing with agriculture inputs, which is seed, fertilizer, pesticide, but quality inputs compared to like, you know, non-quality fake products that are available in the market at a cheaper price. Um, We offer advisory services, insurance, and access to market for the farmers, because as I said at the beginning, that most farmers are smallholder farmers, almost 70% of the financing in agriculture comes from informal sources and these informal sources are basically you know local loan sharks or uh, middlemen who pre-finance the farmers the interest uh, ranges from 20% to like 60 plus percent hmm. a lot of people ask me like what about microfinance because microfinance uh, started from bangladesh and this is uh, you know uh, a, a tool that has helped so many around the world but the challenge with microfinance and agriculture is that microfinance was not never really designed for agriculture mm-hmm. uh, because like for example in in the model of microfinance you have to repay uh, on a weekly basis or on a on a monthly basis smaller quantities but you have to continuously repay pay back mm-hmm. the problem with agriculture is you will only get the money once you have harvested which happens let's say in four to six months even longer for for certain products and 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 this lack of which creates this opportunity for local you know money lenders and loan sharks to offer financing to the farmers at a really high cost and the reason we feel at iPharma that this is the most critical thing is because that this high cost of 
money sort of um, stops the farmer from investing. He wants to play safe, right? He does not invest in better quality of inputs because maybe he's he just wants to do whatever he knows best. Uh, does not really invest in in you know uh, mechanization and stuff like that because again, if if you're borrowed money from at a in a you know with which is really expensive um, you will probably try to play it safe and make sure you make enough to pay it back and and then because he has this pressure to pay back the money when it comes to selling their product right farmers don't really get to negotiate because he's con- like constantly under pressure to pay back that you know high cost um, you know capital yeah so along with a few other things like there's of course the infrastructure for storage and everything else so he he usually sells at whatever price he gets he or she gets so what happens is farmer takes their product and these are small farmers with smaller quantities right so they also don't have the negotiation power mm-hmm. so a usual scenario would be farmer harvests takes the product to the nearest market uh, to the local trader uh, the trader offers a price now farmers the trader knows that the farmers will not not take the product back home because it don't make sense for the farmer to take the product back home without <laughs> transport cost and everything. Yeah. And yes, yeah, so the farmer will try to negotiate, but end of the day, they will uh, sell at whatever the price the traders are offering. Yeah. Some farmers might get really frustrated, and this is when you see in in in, in the news. Uh, if you follow some of these news around, uh, especially in this part of the world, farmers throwing away their products are produced on on the road just out of frustration wow yeah that's why you always want to be the last day of a car boot sale Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but you're right the the, if you're going to have a negotiation you want to be in a position of strength and 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 obviously you're not at that point so so you i mean ifarmers kind of become a super app i don't know if you define it you know yourself because you kind of have multiple problems that you're addressing or multiple customers on it but firstly do you think it's that and and secondly like you started very much with the finance side um and then you opened up you know these other problems that or opportunities that you saw by being close to the farmers right so first of all i don't think we 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 see ourselves we don't see ourselves as super app what we what we think of ourselves is more of a one-stop solution for farmers because Mm -hmm. these are smallholder farmers and they have to deal with different stakeholders right when they want financing they have to go to one person when they want to buy inputs another person when they want advisory that's a different person when they have to sell that's another person you know they a they don't have the capacity to do with so many people and then also you know focus on their farming so we were like look you you, so what we the idea that i farmer has is that um farmers don't have to deal with so many stakeholders rather you know they get all these services under one uh platform or under one umbrella which is iFarmer and also because some of these services I, th- I think evolved like for example we and and also I think I think we saw the opportunity like so we started with financing in 2019 but then the pandemic happened and in 2020 I remember that we were we were looking at these um you know numbers and we saw that farmers are not able to pay back and the reason was they were not able to sell their product um, because during the pandemic, there were like, you know, lockdowns, uh, people were not moving around, the local traders are not operating. So it was very difficult for the farmers to sell their products. So we just started 
you know, our, our supply chain business, because we thought this is a great opportunity where farmers are really struggling and at the, we thought we can we can try and solve this. So that's when our output supply chain vertical started. Then, you know, all these businesses, I think we could uh, start uh, or all these verticals that we could start. It was also because we understood the market, um, the agriculture market, we understood the complexities around, and we were continuously learning and, and collecting feedbacks um, from the farmers. Like, for example, the input uh, business where we distribute agriculture inputs uh, also started when we started, you know, on, you know, getting feedback from the farmers that they were saying, yes, you finance us, but then you know, with that money, we still can't buy the best quality inputs because the nearest shop that we buy it from does not even have those inputs. Um, so no matter, you know, even if you give us financing, you give us advisory to buy the best quality inputs, but I don't have access to that input. With that insight, we started working on the inputs uh, side of things. So I think I think this ver- this evolution of iFarmer from financing to output supply chain to input distribution to advisory insurance and all this stuff was not always predetermined. These mm-hmm. these are these are these are like. A, we saw the opportunity, but the opportunity came because we always had our 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 years um, on and eyes on the ground to continuously observe and learn and, and understand what is happening um, on the ground and and with the farmers. So coming way back to when your colleague said, "How's a farmer going to pay for this?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> you've found a few areas where you you offer value, and and you've obviously been able to monetize. Right. Um, um, that relationship, right? So, uh, so give give our listeners a, a, an impression of how many farmers and and finances and and um, things that you know some metrics around what you've been doing. Yeah. Um. So so currently we work with seventy one thousand farmers till date. Um. Since and and even the seventy one thousand sometimes feels like a you know scratching the surface because <laughs> there's twenty million of them. Yeah. Um. And um. Till date, since starting. In 2019, uh, we have financed about or facilitated about 25 million US dollars in farm uh, financing. As I said, we have uh, also expanded into the input and output uh, side of things. On the output side, in July 2020, when we started that, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, we were moving about 50 tons of product, like, you know, uh, from the farmers to the buyers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Our buyers are mostly, you know, processing companies, super shops, wholesale markets, those sort of uh, you know, buyers. Mm-hmm. Currently, we do about uh, 15,000 tons a month, right? So from yeah. 50 tons in July 2020 to like, you know, June 2022, we're doing 15 uh, tons a month. And yeah, and then going back to that revenue question, whether whether this was a good business to to make money, um, we we um, our last year's revenue was uh, ten million dollars, and and this year, like uh, from Jan to June, we already uh, clocked in a revenue of about twenty two million dollars. Wow. Um, we still have the next six months as well. So yeah. I think you're going to be getting phone calls after this chat. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw that, I think it was one or two years ago. I mean, not even two. I reckon it was 18 months ago or something. I looked and you had 5,000 or, or something in the, the original uh, thing right. that I received, right? 5,000 right. farmers and, yeah. and to 71. How do you go from 
thousand to seventy thousand in a year or whatever. Like, what what changed for you? Did you, you did your tech change? Did did you just add tons more people? Uh, what what was the what was the real catalyst? Um, so I think the real catalyst was I think there are two things that happened. So A was uh, back then when we when you saw the five thousand, we did not uh, in a farmers we did not have any tech. <laughs> Um, because I, th- I think the first one and a half year, we did not have any technology. Um, wow. We were just, uh, you know, as, as Paul Graham says, do things that don't scale. So we sort of probably <laughs> believed in that a bit too much probably. And, and we were like literally doing things, but that helped us. Um, so, so hold on, let's for a second. Your first hundred farmers, tell us how you, because it sounds easy, right? You, you, yeah. you find people willing to finance stuff. You, yeah. you know, find people people who need to borrow the money and are good for it and will pay you back but these are people that probably are mostly unbanked or certainly you know not don't have access to to lending and are probably seen as a high flight risk so that that first hundred tell us how that happened like how did you do it if you didn't have any tech so the first uh, hundred farmers we visited uh, their house Um, so when I say we we have like field uh, team uh, Mm -hmm. including in some of the visits I was there as well my other team members co-founders we all sort of you know would form a group and uh, we have a we had a template for collecting the data right you know there, there were like questions like you know what's your plan for next season how much money do you need what are your current sources of financing what did you do last year and then you know trying to understand their 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 agri culture situ- like you know the farming situation their there's uh their their socioeconomic conditions and mm-hmm. stuff like that but this was like all done like manually we would collect this um from we would go from house to house in 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 a village and collect this information but and then end of the day we'd sit together and analyze uh, this information what did we learn what did we observe and those sort of stuff uh, and then put it in an excel file <laughs> right and then, and then we would rank the farmers like based on the information we have based on our our understanding um in our gut feeling and everything else we just we just rank the farmers uh, that well this farmer uh, scores the highest and you know we can definitely finance it this farmer has a really low score either we need to find more information or we just say we we can't work with this farmer at the moment so it's all manual so um, you created basically a human credit engine of, of your team to, yeah, sort of. to do it and, and where did the finance come from was that friends and families and it fools, was, as they it say? was yeah friends families and and fools <laughs> um and yeah i think i think it was because people sort of trusted me and my co-founder and and, and our team and these mm-hmm. are like you know friends and family and they thought yeah okay like you know they they seem to understand what they're doing um and we'll just give them the money and probably no one really expected us to return their money (laughs) Um, they probably gave it us as a gift but never really said that but that's i think the first year like 2019 um all the financing came from friends and family you know people that we know um and and but also we, we gave them a lot of data, you know, all those manual data that we collected. We also shared with them all the data and stuff. But then I think from 20, like from the middle of 2020 or early 2020, I would say, we started seeing like 
things happen organically. Like we'd receive a call from someone that, you know, no one, none of us knew this person. And he'd call us and said, okay, you're a farmer. You, you, you help uh, invest in, in farming and agriculture. I, I want to learn more. Can I visit your office? Said, yeah. yeah sure. um, so I think it was, it was like, you know, from Q2 of 2020, uh, we started uh, observing a lot of organic growth. Um, right. And it was mostly through word of mouth because we were still not advertising. We we're still not like we just had a Facebook page. Um, that was it. We didn't even have a website. <laughs> and, and at this point, did you already have like one season worth of, of crops returned and, and yes. you know, payback, right? Like, did you yes. have a big default? What was the what was the first 50 or 100? What, what was like the average? Oh, return? The, first, the first 100, the, the average return to the investors was uh, they received an annualized return of almost uh, 25-30%. What? Of course, yeah, that was, that's the first group of people because we, we did not, so we did not <laughs> cut... Yeah, you didn't uh, take we, anything. Yeah, we didn't take anything. Uh, we, we gave everything. So 70% wow. of the profit went to the farmers yeah. and about 30% went to the investors. And they were happy, wow. more than happy, I'd say. And surprisingly, we did not have any default. Zero defaults. Zero defaults. Right. Um, and, and one reason is because we really closely monitored these 100 farmers, right? Yeah. Yeah, as of our field team, and we we knew that at scale that is not going to happen. Okay. But and and I continue to say this and tell this to my team that the vision of scaling up has to be there. Mm-hmm. But this is still day one, right? You yeah. Still need- of the problem on day one and today you don't have that scale today you have 10 customers so we should try to give them like uh, you know the best experience they can have and of course we know that we'll not be able to give that five-star experience when you have uh, you know uh, 10 million customers but uh, yeah that is that is for the future to solve and, and and come up but today you have 10 existing customers and we have to give them the best experience. And I assume you don't have a fully human credit engine anymore because I, I downloaded your app, which, um, you know, allows me to kind of look and see at the different projects right, that, that right, you're doing, right, right and, and potential right. returns. So right. um, when I say super app, you're kind of super, super in the sense that you're democratizing or making it easier to find funding sources to people who would have access to a smartphone. But I guess for for your average farmer in, in rural, Bangladesh they're probably you know they're not carrying iPhones are they so so you have to have a solution that's fit for purpose how have you solved that is it still is it I know you're like 140 people now so is it are you trying to maintain that face-to-face as much as possible or are you caught between a sort of oh should we fully automate or what's the right what's the right input mechanism to to get these um, the demand from the farmer side so so what we have done and what and this has also helped us to some extent to go from 5,000 to 70,000 plus farmers is so we still have that presence with our own team on the ground but now they're not um, going from you know the farmers uh, house to house and collecting data they're they're basically monitoring facilitating we call them field facilitators okay and what we have is now we have a technology now farmers we figured out that farmers that most of their uh, you know when 
they they visit the agri input retail shop um you know very frequently mm-hmm. a, either to get advice or to buy inputs uh, but this is their go-to place and we started partnering up with these input shops to turn them into our agents now what happens right. is the farmer comes into a shop and he says i farm a logo what i farmer does and everything and he wants to apply for financing at the moment he wants that there's an app that the agent uses and he can make the application within 10 to 15 minutes um, collecting you know necessary data the kyc Um, we are also connected to the government database to verify that person's um, you know national id and everything else so now it happens within 15 minutes Um, when we did that first hundred each interview took us about like one and a half to like two hours Uh, (laughs) so yeah and 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 this agent model helped us to scale faster and and yeah i think i I think that's 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 what's uh we're trying to increase the number of agents to reach to more number of farmers and and our team continues to be there to observe to learn to facilitate these agents mm-hmm. um, to continue to work with the farmers because again farmers don't have smartphones right so they still need certain things that have to be done has to be done physically like for example one thing that we do is we conduct like frequently we conduct um, field trainings right so where we would invite like 50 farmers to talk about potato farming right um or tomato farming and stuff like that and and you know in each training there could be like 50 to 100 farmers but then Mm -hmm. like you know we do like a few hundred trainings every week or month and these our field team facilitates this training and stuff like that so yeah i I think this this situation is as such that farmers still don't have access to a smartphone but they do have access to a phone right and now we're also trying to take advantage of that so we try we send them regular sms's we send them like you know phone calls from our call center which we have newly set up farmers can also call us uh, and ask for um, you know uh, suggestions or advisory services and, and, and stuff like that yeah uh, you've got your feelers like all over the place and you're able to kind of process um, the demand right so what's the vision for this are you gonna are you gonna stick with Bangladesh or I mean because you've only just scratched the surface as you said at the beginning right you feel like you're only just getting started even though you've got 70,000 farmers uh, you know already on your platform you're going after market opportunity of 20 million or do you do you want to take this into you know other other countries as well as soon as possible what how do you see the vision so we we wanted to we wanted to um, deploy this in other countries as soon as we were confident that now we have the right technology and the right mix um, to be to replicate iFarmer in, in, in another location with similar context. Uh, but then COVID happened um, and yeah, it was uh, it was very difficult um, to do anything. And so we sort of refocused and said, well, let's let's focus on, on Bangladesh. So our target for, for now in Bangladesh is to reach uh, a million farmer by 2025. And then beyond 2025, we would go back and look into those other countries that we identified. Um, so 
you know, which has similar context. We have some experience. On the top of the list uh, is actually Myanmar because I lived and worked there for so long. I understand the, the, the market systems there. But we are also looking at Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos, um, these countries with similar context, similar similar problems and challenges um, in the Indian agriculture system. Yeah, I mean, smart. Go for places where you have a, an understanding um, because otherwise you're probably going <laughs> to learn your lesson the expensive way. <laughs> And, you know, I, I really think it's a super interesting example for entrepreneurs because I think investors all the time tell, tell you know, founders, just stick to one very specific problem. Don't try and solve multiple pain points in one go. And I actually quite like this work by Parker Conrad who talks about compound startups. And that theory is around the deepest business problems are, you know, often span multiple uh, point solutions right. rather than like a single point. Right. And I think I find is a really good example of that you start with something i think it's good to have very good fo- you know strong focus but actually there's so many adjacencies for you because you've taken what is essentially an unattractive uh, customer or a customer that nobody else wants it i, I mean maybe that's unfair like i'm sure fertilizer companies and things want them as customers but but, uh, but they're not seen as a high value right. um uh, high value customer but what's exciting is by you know helping with their biggest pain point around finance, you then see these adjacencies and you see the other issues which are slowing down productivity or slowing down growth. And you might just stumble on some of the bigger problems for Bangladesh and and actually the world in that we need to feed more and more people. If we don't have people who are passionate about farming who want to grow crops, we're going to have a major problem. So, you know, the way to really understand that is by being close to that audience, an audience that is basically unheard and not seen as being attractive. But you guys have kind of almost quietly completely under the radar you know um got 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 to know them really well and that to me is extremely inspiring and that's why i think you know ifarmer has a very big opportunity obviously uh to 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 go after i just want to say congratulations because i saw that you're going to be joining the masters of scale uh events in san fran is that um how did that happen and and uh, are you excited yes so i i think it was the first episode of of masters of scale uh when they launched the the podcast and i'm a big fan of uh, you know reed hoffman yeah um and i started listening to it from from the very first episode and then you know in one of the episodes they said well we're doing a summit and we're going to invite like around 30 to 40 early stage founders um to join the summit for free and i was like yes why not like <laughs> um should definitely apply for it i just i i applied and um yeah, got a got a positive response, um, and definitely, definitely looking forward to this uh, event because I think I think right now as as also as a business, I think we've done the first step of of the of a long journey. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to get to what we wherever we have built, we have a product market fit. Now the question is, how do you scale? Like, how do I go to 10 million farmers? How do I go to like you know 20 million beyond Bangladesh and and, and all this stuff? And I felt like uh, that's my expectation that I probably will get to interact and learn from people who have scaled. And and of course, scaling up comes with its own challenges, uh, you know, requirements for resources and everything. And that's what I'm looking forward to, like, you know, gaining that experience. I think that would be 
very eye-opening. I've seen some of the speakers there. They're off the charts. They're like a hit list of everyone and anyone who's a, a billionaire or built built in crazy big company. Um, I think you're going to you know, put Bangladesh on the map there for sure. And um, I, I've really enjoyed this chat. I could talk for a lot longer on iPharma and the opportunity. How do people get in touch? Is LinkedIn the best way or, or uh, like I'm sure? Yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is definitely where I'm, I'm really active. Um, and we are we are uh, we just started having conversation um, to raise our Series A. So definitely open to having conversations around fundraise. But also, other than fundraise, we are continuously looking um, to collaborate with mm-hmm. technology, um, you know, companies who has solved problems um, in this agriculture space. Like, you know, we're talking to remote sensing companies. We're talking to like companies who make and, and design, you know, soil sensors and stuff like that. So cool. Um, always open for that sort of collaboration. Uh, and yes, LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to, to get in touch. Uh, you know, if you search Fahadifaz, um, it should show up. Cool. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. So Fahad, this has been, you know, fantastic. Thanks for taking us through your story, how far you've come and, uh, in, you know, how honest and uh, open it was. And, you know, I think it's a real lesson as well in terms of uh, not chasing the money, right? Like getting, they say, fall in love with the problem you know and and you were able to take kind of 10 years of experience and um you know you toyed with the rooftop solution but then you kind of uh, you know had your moment when you went hold on i'm basically a global expert in this and um and 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 as soon as you did that um you know it's uh, obviously flourished and um, that that's, you know, something that, that we can all kind of take away and, and, and learn from. It's like you don't have to force it. We don't have to raise too much money. You need enough to get going. But if you can if you can create traction just through friends and family money and, and um, then add capital at the right time, you probably in, end up in a, a, a in the long run in a much better position than, than taking too much money too early when you haven't really got market fit yet. So thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure and i'll be tracking iPharma for sure and uh, look forward forward to having you on the on the show when you're a unicorn (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thank thanks a lot rafael and uh, i enjoyed the conversation and also it's always good i think one important thing is that it's it's always good to remember why and how you started and and i think it was today when we were having this conversation uh usually these days you don't get a lot of time because have to live in the present and look into the future but this sort of opportunity is, is always a good thing to be able to look back and, and remember why and how you started thank you thank you for that and thank you for having me here